All my life, I've known lots of Bible stories. But 10 or 15 years ago, I began to be introduced to biblical theology. How it all fits together. This, yes, this understanding that there is a central storyline. There is a larger story that all of these smaller stories fit into. When you just take one of the individual stories, we tend to make them about us and what we're supposed to do. Mm. And what biblical theology has done for me is it's helped me see in the Bible who Christ is and what he has done. And that changes everything. Hey, Mike Horton here. If you're new to the White Horse Inn and want to know what you believe and why you believe it, be sure to visit our website in order to sign up for a free membership. When you sign up at whitehorseinn.org, you'll get free access to the 12 most recent extended-length episodes, along with discussion questions for each program and terms to learn. And you can get your free membership just by signing up at whitehorseinn.org forward slash member. That's whitehorseinn.org slash member. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, Welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hey there, welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal. Though many Christians in our day are familiar with all the individual stories of the Bible, it seems that few are taught how all those stories point to a single coherent narrative. So what exactly is the grand unifying theme of the Bible? And how do all the individual chapters and episodes fit together? Michael Horton and Adriel Sanchez recently had the opportunity to discuss these questions and more with Nancy Guthrie, author of Even Better Than Eden, Nine Ways the Bible's Story Changes Everything About Your Story. Nancy, you talk a lot about biblical theology, and that's a phrase that I'm sure a lot of people are unfamiliar with. Well, I know when I first heard the phrase, my thought was that they're talking about theology that is biblical mm -hmm. rather than unbiblical. Yeah. And that's not really what it is. I think to think about what is biblical theology, it is an understanding that the divine author of the Bible, over its 66 books written by many human authors, that there is a central storyline mm -hmm. that is coherent among all these different genre of scripture yeah. and throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. It is telling us a coherent story of what God is doing in his world through Christ. Yes. And, and it, it has a beginning and it has a culmination. And growing up, I mean, I was at church every time it was open. I was a Sunday school kid and I always had all the answers. <laughs> and, you know, there's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And I studied Bible in college. And so all my life, I've known lots of Bible stories. Pieces, parts. Pieces and parts. But it wasn't until maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I began to be introduced to biblical theology. How it all fits together. This, yes, this understanding that there is a central storyline. There is a larger story that all of these smaller stories fit into. And see, the beautiful thing about learning that is that, you know, when you just take one of the individual stories, what tends to happen is we take that story and we try to draw some kind of lesson from it. Mm about how we're supposed to live, you know, and we look at that person, we think, oh, you should do that. You shouldn't do that. Like be courageous. Him. Yeah. Yes. Dare to be a Daniel. 
And we take little bits of scripture and we tend to make them about us and what we're supposed to do. Mm. And what biblical theology has done for me is it's helped me see in the Bible that it's about who Christ is and what he Mm. has done. And that changes everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You uh, have a book, Even Better Than Eden, Nine Ways the Bible Story Changes Everything About Your Story. First of all, I love that title. Because we tend, don't we, to say, all right, here's my story that I'm writing for my life, and here's the part that God plays in that story, instead of, as you have here, no, 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 you don't realize, you have a stupid story. Sorry, no no offense, but... It, uh, You're not talking particularly to me, Not specifically. I'm not targeting you, Nancy, okay. but God has a great story, the greatest story ever told, and it's better if you had a bit part in this story than to be the star of your own. You could never write this story. And we don't have a bit part. We're children of the living God. And you, in this book, in the first chapter, begin with the themes of the garden and the wilderness in the Bible. Just a little brief introduction to how you organize this book. Well, we were talking about biblical theology, that it has a story. And like all good books, the Bible not only has a storyline, it has themes. It has themes that the divine author has written into his book so that we will get his message. Trace it from Genesis to Revelation. Yes. And these themes help us get God's message to us. And so what I do in Even Better Than Eden is I take nine themes that begin there in the garden, and they work their way throughout the Old Testament, through the history books and the wisdom books and the prophets. And then we see something change dramatically in the Gospels and in the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then that shows us where we're headed. And so I take nine themes that that run. So garden wilderness is one. We look at the tree of life that's there at the beginning and that what happens with the tree in terms of the tree Christ dies on and then the tree of life and how it's transformed at the end of the Bible. Things like the image of God. Uh, Clothing is an interesting one. Uh, We talk about the temple. I mean, what's more significant throughout the pages of the Bible? You kind of wonder when you read the Old Testament, why is it talking about this tabernacle and then this temple so much? Well, it has to do with God's desire to dwell with us. And we see that's the beginning all the way through to the end of the Bible. And then most particularly, maybe my favorite, when I'm just going to do one message from this book, I I do the story of the offspring. You know, Mm -hmm. having been someone who grew up in church, nobody ever told me how important Genesis 3.15 is to understanding Mm. the rest of the Bible, Mm -hmm. which is this announcement to Satan that one day there's going to be an offspring of the woman who's going to crush his head. Mm. And that is what explains so much about the rest of the story of the Bible. This is what explains all of those battles. Mm -hmm. It's what explains those long genealogies we get bored Mm -hmm. reading and want to skim through. Pharaoh and Herod. All of these things, yes. And so when we understand all of these themes, it's the kind of thing that then when we go to a story like Pharaoh or like Herod, and we we fit it into this larger theme, it just makes more sense to us. Mm-hmm. And I also think that it then sets our hope on how that story is going to resolve mm-hmm. over and over again. Yeah, that, that's so helpful. I was talking to a family member not long ago who isn't a believer, but decided they wanted to read through the Bible. And so they started in Genesis. And they're talking to me about how weird it is that God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son. And Boy, doesn't that just show that the Bible is really filled with all these terrible stories and we shouldn't believe it. And I tried to bring up, well, actually, this is a a wonderful picture of 
the gospel. <laughs> these The way these themes all, all work together, as you're saying, unless we see that, these stories that we see in the Old Testament sometimes can seem very frightening and concerning, can't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless you understand the theme of the lamb or sacrifice mm-hmm. that runs from beginning to end of the Bible, then when you read that story, you'll be confused yeah. and, and perhaps a little offended mm-hmm. that God would ask that of Abraham. But then, like you said, once you see it in the story, no, this is about the father who's going to march his own son mm. carrying the wood on which he will be sacrificed up a hill. But instead of the knife being stayed, this this son will be offered as the once for all perfect sacrifice. Isaac and when goes you, free. Preach it. That's right. And when you see it in that light, your your heart melts because yeah. you see the beauty of Jesus Christ. But then you take it, we, we want to keep taking it further, and we go to the very end of the story. And in Revelation, there is seated on the throne, there is a lamb on the throne, and he looks as if he has been slain, that he still bears the marks of that sacrifice. Even and, as he showed his disciples, wow. look, see, put your hand in my right. side and that's see right. that I'm not a ghost. So hmm. this understanding the whole story of the Bible, biblical theology, is what equips us to read a story like that and be able to make sense of it. And to get us to the gospel and not Mm -hmm. just a sense of either what we're supposed to do or not supposed to do. Well, let's get on the highway, some of the the highways of your of your book. What's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And what's its significance in the story? Well, it's confusing, isn't it? I think it's a little bit helpful to think of the tree, maybe give it some slightly different names. I think we could call it the judgment tree. Uh, Throughout the Bible, uh, trees are places in Old Testament where judgments are made, specifically judgments of what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. So this, you, you know, the tree in itself wasn't evil. The tree was the place in which this first son, Adam, was meant to go and make a right judgment based on what? Based on God's word. God had told him. Do not eat that tree, and the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the story could have gone differently. I mean, uh, you know, Adam could have gone to the tree and heard the word of the serpent. What he should have done, if we remember, Adam had been instructed to exercise dominion over what? Birds of the air, fish of the sea, and creeping things. Mm. Which would include a serpent, yeah. (laughs) Here's here's a creeping thing. Get that creeping thing out of my garden. It's talking back to him. Yeah. Red flag. Right. And and so the story could have gone that he would have crushed the head of that rebellion right Mm -hmm. then and there at the judgment tree, at the place where he was meant to exercise judgment. Or I think we could also think of it as the probation tree. And by that, I mean, Adam and Eve were given these commands. They're to be fruitful and multiply. They're to exercise dominion. Adam is to work and keep the garden. The story's not finished just with their creation. No, they've got this incredible mission that they're on. And as good as Adam and Eve were, and as good, as pristine, as innocent as Eden was, it wasn't yet all that God intended for his people to be, for his creation to be. Because, see, the the story of the Bible, and this is really at the heart of even better than Eden, is that the story of the Bible has always been headed toward glory. And this first son was given the opportunity to obey. And so we we could think of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a, a place. God intended it as a place of testing, to test will they obey. And had they obeyed, Adam and Eve 
I think, would have gone from glory to glory. Mm -hmm. They were already glorious, made in the image of Mm -hmm. God. But not glorified. But not yet glorified. Mm -hmm. And that's always been where the story of the Bible is headed. But instead of obeying there, Satan took what was meant to be a tree of testing, and he turned it into a tree of temptation. And so instead of obeying, instead of relying on God's word, instead of calling evil evil and good good, uh, instead they, they disobeyed. They, they and, he's, and he's sitting on a chair there listening to the serpent talking to his wife. Yes, yes, and, and allows her to be deceived and doesn't insert oh. what he was meant to do, this dominion mm. that he was meant to exercise. What does that mean for us? What this means for us is because Adam and Eve are ultimate parents of the human family, um, that's impacted everyone and everything, that rebellion. You know, God had said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they didn't die physically. God came in mercy. But we did die spiritually. Mm. And we, you and I, inherit from them this sin nature. And if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, that uh, Genesis 3.15, that's so important. That's part of what helps us understand that. We know that someone's got to come to put an end to the power of sin and death that begin to reign, in a sense, in God's world at the beginning of that day. And he has come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has come. And, and and he fulfilled that probation. He fulfilled it. Yes. So here's Adam. He was meant to obey when he is tested in the garden. He fails. Then there's another son, Israel. God, when he talks about Israel to Pharaoh, he's, he calls him my firstborn son. Mm-hmm. And he calls them out and he's going to take them into a land. And it kind of sounds like a new Eden. It's a land of milk and honey. And he's given them a law to live by there. And he gives them all of these promises that will be theirs if they obey. And honestly, some of those promises are over the top. They seem like almost Edenic kind of promises Mm. if they obey. But what happens? They don't obey. They rebel. And their lives are full of spiritual um, adultery mm. and idolatry. And so would still, rather hang out with the idols than with their God. Absolutely. Yeah. And so still, there's still this sense of we still need a son who will obey. And then comes Jesus and he comes and he what happens immediately? He, he is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. And he is tempted. And what's amazing is we see both in the wilderness And then later in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is so pressed with temptation by the evil one, what does he do? He obeys. He obeys. So understanding this story. So we'll not live by bread alone, but by every word word that comes from the mouth of God. Yes. One reason it's helpful for us to understand this, it helps us make sense of why we must become joined to Jesus Christ by faith. Yes. You know, we talk a lot about what it means to be a Christian and becoming a Christian or making a decision for Christ. Understanding this story, we yeah. realize, okay, I was born connected to, joined to Adam by just being in this human family. And that's only going to lead to death. And so it is essential. It is the only way to life is if I now become joined to this righteous son. Mm. 
so that his righteousness becomes mine, so that I can now dwell in the presence of God in a way that Adam was sent out of, Israel was sent out of the land, the presence of God. And it's being joined to Jesus Christ, this obedient son, mm. that it's going to allow me to then enter into the presence of God and, and be in from, his presence forever. And eat from the tree of life that yes. is in the garden of God in the book of yes. Revelation. Folks, if you enjoy this broadcast, consider diving in a little deeper with our White Horse Sin study kits. These kits are perfect for small to medium-sized groups from 5 to 15 people. And they can also be used for family devotions or individual study. Choose from several subjects like how to read your Bible, do we all worship the same God, and the parables of Jesus. For a donation of $15, you'll receive download links to leader's guides, student guides, full-length audio, and short audio clips pertaining to each lesson. Just head to whitehorseinn.org forward slash study kits. That's whitehorseinn.org slash study kits. Your $15 donation will help us to continue to make resources like this to help Christians know what they believe and why they believe it. Thanks for your support. Welcome back to The White Horse Inn as Michael Horton and Adriel Sanchez are talking with Nancy Guthrie about her book, Even Better Than Eden. In your book, and Even Better Than Eden, you say, if you have been joined to Christ by faith, the process of your being remade into the image of the resurrected Christ has already begun. Mm. Amen. Isn't what, that good news? Yeah, it is great news. Well, honestly, this is something I learned from Michael Horton. Oh, <laughs> oh right. It, it is in part something I heard on the White Horse Inn many years ago that was kind of like I kept rewinding and listening to understanding. And that was you all were talking one time about the verse um, that whoever is in Christ, the new creation has come. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I've always heard that is a new creation. And that's one way that that can be translated. And that's the way it's translated but when you talked about that, the new creation has come. It just gives me this vivid picture. What is the new creation? Well, that's to come in, in the consummation when God comes and makes all things new. The end of the book of Revelation. And when he, we get to enter in and live forever in the new heavens and the new earth, that's the new creation. But this verse says, if you are in Christ, that new creation that's out there in the future it's actually reaching back into our present experience. And what? how do we know? It's going to work in the interior of our lives. I also think about uh, in 2 Corinthians where he talks about, you know, the outside is wasting away. Mm -hmm. But on the inside, we are being made new. How's that happening? Because that new creation life, it's not simply reserved for the future. To be in Christ is to have that new creation life reaching back into our present right now, making us new on the inside. Yeah. You, you talked about how we inherit sin from Adam. Why is this news so important for the person right now who's listening? And they, they wrestle with sin. They're struggling with thumb-besetting sin, grasping this idea of the new creation being here, having a new identity united to Jesus. Why, why is that significant for them? Here's the thing. If you're just united to Adam, you have no power over sin. It's always going to win. It's always going to be at the heart of your nature, at you're the not heart even of your impulses. Yeah. yeah, you won't even have the desire to say no to it, even when you see that it's destroying you. So the only hope for people like you and me who have a bent toward sin 
is if this new creation does come and do a work inside us. And as it does, it begins to give us new desires. Mm -hmm. And it begins to give us fresh power for saying no to sin. The only way, I mean, I think about, I think about myself and lots of people um, about the idea of change. I think sometimes we have mixed feelings about change. We think there's a part of us that says, don't you be asking me to change because I'm comfortable the way I am. But then there's this other part of us that feels a great deal of fear. Maybe I can never change. Shame. And that's really scary if you are stuck, especially Mm -hmm. in a, in a terrifying sin pattern. Well, let me tell you how change happens. Change happens as we are united to Christ by faith and the power of his life, his righteous life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection is applied to us. That sounds like the Apostle Paul all over the place, but especially when he says, you know, basically, I don't live. You know, in our culture, we are so about empowerment of the self. And, you know, I am an individual, and I'm not going to let anybody define me. And here's Paul saying, Christ is so much my reference point Being in Christ is so much my identity that it's not that I'm absorbed into him. I'm no longer a person, but my identity is hidden with God in Christ. In other words, my story has become part of his story. Mm, That's such good news because here's here's his story, resurrection, (laughs) resurrection. You want to write your story? Really? Yeah. (laughs) Who could write that good of a story? And so uh, I want to be joined to him in his righteous life. I need his righteous life flowing into me both. And imputed to you. Imputed to me and changing me. Yeah. And I need resurrection hope for the future. You're talking about justification and sanctification. Two terms that we really emphasize on the program. Justification, declared righteous, sanctification, being gradually transformed into the likeness of Christ. And that word imputed, too, that might be a word that's not familiar to, I mean, it isn't familiar to many believers today, but it's so important as you were talking about how Jesus came and he's obedient everywhere that Adam failed, everywhere that Israel failed. We don't often talk about the importance of Christ's obedience in the church today for the believer. Can you unpack that a little bit more and talk about imputation? Well, I think what you're referring to is that mostly we think about Christ paying the penalty for our sins. And that's pretty important. (laughs) I'm forgiving. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty important. But I need more than that Mm -hmm. if I'm going to stand before a holy God. And so I need not only for him to pay for the wrong I've done, I need his righteousness. And that word imputed, I it's kind of a, a judicial term, but I also think of it as an accounting type firm, yeah. like deposited into my account. Mm-hmm. That's the best way I know how to think about it. And I think that really helps. It makes me think about Romans 4. This is kind of the argument that Paul makes in Romans 4. He's He's basically saying, yeah, you need someone to pay your debt. There's an accounting term. So in Christ's sacrificial death, my debt is paid. But in this imputation of his righteousness... Then my account goes way up, yeah. <laughs> way up. It's, it's not it doesn't just go to zero. Instead, the righteousness, the perfect, beautiful righteousness of Jesus Christ is applied to my account. I didn't do would. anything mm-hmm. to earn it. It was given to me. So there's no role here for uh, continuing and wallowing in shame because we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. But then also the power of 
of his life at work in us so that we're free not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power. Absolutely. We are, as Peter would say, we've become partakers of the divine nature. Isn't I mean, that? it doesn't get better than <laughs> I, that. I, I, was, I read that a few weeks ago and I just like, I'm a partaker of the divine nature. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? It really is amazing. I hear a lot of times that the future we should be looking forward to is a restoration of Eden or a return to Eden. Mm -hmm. Paradise restored. And we think of Eden in terms of perfection. My contention is that we should think of it in terms of potential. Right. Mm. Yeah. And if you think about Eden, it was pristine. It was pure. But it wasn't secure. Isn't that obvious? Yeah. You know, something evil's going to slither into it. Adam and Eve weren't completely secure. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to death. Um, it wasn't yet all God created. I mean, this is, it had boundaries. It was, it was a boundaries. It was surrounded by wilderness. And we know it wasn't yet all God intended because this is why God gave them this command. They are, they are meant to be fruitful and multiply. And as they do, the earth is going to become filled with image bearers of God who are loving him and enjoying him forever. So it's always been headed somewhere. And I suppose if at that tree, Adam and Eve had obeyed, that the story of the Bible could have been creation, obedience, Mm. consummation. They would have led us into this glory that God always intended. But instead, the story of the Bible, if we want to put in four words, would be creation, fall or rebellion, redemption, consummation. But my contention is it's not merely a return to to Eden, because in every of the each one of the nine themes that I cover in Even Better Than Eden, one thing that we see is how much better, how much more glorious our future is going to be in this new garden. What eye has not seen nor ear heard. It's always going to be better. So according to each theme, so it's going to be a garden. It's going to be a garden that is far better. When you look in Revelation 22 and it describes the new heaven and the new earth in very garden-like mm-hmm. themes, but it all excels. You know, the, the tree of mm-hmm. life is there, but now it's on both sides of the river and it has 12 kinds of fruits and a new kind of fruit every month. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. it's all language of escalation. It's yeah. language of better. Yeah. Uh, and whereas ma- you've got Eden in one local yes. place on earth... Here, you not only have the whole earth full of the glory of God, the whole earth is the temple, but the distinction between heaven and earth disappears. is lost. Yes. So expansive. We were talking earlier about this theme of of offspring. And when you get to the end of the Bible, uh, in Revelation uh, 21 and 22, I think this is a reference. It says, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Mm -hmm. So it will be completely secure. It's described with walls and all these things. So better than Eden. the security is going to be better than Eden. The marriage that began in Eden, it began really good. But you just go a few verses from there <laughs> naked and unashamed to this woman you gave me. <laughs> and marriage goes really wrong uh-huh. very fast. And marriage throughout the Bible, it's we recognize as we trace the story, it's always been about God's intention to have a son and his bride in a new creation. 
And he hasn't given up on that. And and that's where we're headed toward in the future. And there at the end of the Bible, we read about the bridegroom and he says, come and we see the bride and she is adorned beautifully for her husband. And that's just another example of a story that resolves. But then we see this marriage is going to be so much better than the marriage in Eden because this bridegroom won't fail his bride. He will love his bride perfectly. This is going to be the best marriage of all time, and it will not be simply until death do you part, because death will not us part at that point. There will be no more death. And so it's going to be the best marriage, and it's going to last forever. And then the bridegroom will say, this woman that you gave me, but only to cherish her yeah. and oh, to beautiful. thank the father for his gift of his church. You know, if you read the book of Isaiah and you're not oriented toward understanding and seeing that this is really about the Christ who is going to come. Mm. Boy, that book is hard to make sense of, isn't it? (laughs) And, you know, one part it says, oh, things are going to be good. And then another part, oh, things are going to be really bad. Who's Edom? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, I think for most of my life, even though I'm somebody who grew up in church and studied the Bible a lot, just all of the prophets, because they didn't make sense to me. It was easy to just avoid them, them. right? Just kind of lop them out of the Bible. Or it's all about Israel and the Antichrist. Yes, those things. And so, I mean, when I began to discover, oh, this is about Christ. And Isaiah is uh, seeing himself at a particular place in the unfolding revelation and redemption story through Jesus Christ. And so he's looking at his people squarely today, and he's talking to them, and he's talking about them, but there's more there. And that the answer to all of their issues is this one who's going to come. And so he he reveals in these chapters and chapters all that the Christ is going to do. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this edition of the White Horse Inn. But you can hear more of today's conversation with Nancy Guthrie at whitehorseinn.org. Here's what you're missing. One of my instincts is to read the Bible and say, what does this mean for me? So we jump far too quickly to the text of the scripture to trying to apply it. And so what we always have to learn is we have to think first when we go to the Bible, who is the original audience? What did it mean? What were the implications for them then? Folks, when you help support the work of the White Horse Inn by signing up as a regular partner, you'll get longer editions of every White Horse Inn broadcast. For more information, simply head over to whitehorseinn.org forward slash podcast partner. That's whitehorseinn.org forward slash podcast partner. If you're new to the program, be sure to request our intro kit, which includes the current issue of our magazine, Modern Reformation, as well as our most recent set of extended-length Whitehorse Inn broadcasts. To request your intro kit, head to whitehorseinn.org slash kit. That's whitehorseinn.org forward slash kit. Thanks for being with us for this broadcast, and we'll look forward to being with you again next time at the Whitehorse Inn.